All right, so we're in John. Uh, we're going to start chapter 9 today. And for the last several months, we've been going through chapters 7 and 8. And really, the one of the main themes of John so far is is uh, this division over Jesus. Uh, you know, as he's taught, as he's done things, or you guys are all sitting on that side, so I'm just going to move over here. No problem. Um, so as he's taught and as he's done things around Galilee and around Judea, uh, there have basically been two responses of everyone to him. Some people think that he's the Christ, and others think basically he has a demon and they want to kill him. Right, those are the two basic responses to Jesus. And you can see examples of that in like John 7, 40 and 41. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this is certainly the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? So there's, there's division over him. You know, Some people think he's actually the Christ, or at least the prophet. Uh, others think that he's crazy, and he's a fraud. Um, and then you see uh, sort of a heightening of that reaction in chapter 8, what we talked about last time. So if you look at chapter 8, verse 48, uh, this is when he's telling them that they're not children of Abraham like they think they are. And it says, The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So they're accusing him of being demon-possessed. Right, obviously very sharply opposed reaction. Uh, and then at the end of that chapter, which we concluded last time, verse 59, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And that was after he claimed to be the I Am, you know, the ancient name of God that God gave when he appeared to Moses. So... Um, there's these two camps, right? Some believe that he's the Christ. Some think he has a demon and want to kill him. So, just as a review, like, what are the reasons? What are the evidence that people are giving? Like, people on, on, on the, in the opposing camp who think he's got a demon, who think who want to kill him, what evidence are they giving that he should be killed, that he's got a demon? Yeah, even if it's wrong. What do they think are the arguments? Uh huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they're kind of twisting his his miraculous abilities into evidence against him, or like evidence that he has a demon. Like what? Why don't they accept him as the Christ? The Sabbath. Exactly. Yeah. They. Nice. Yeah, good good catch. They yeah, he broke the Sabbath, they think, right? He healed that guy um at the pool on the Sabbath. And then today we're going to see he heals a blind man on the Sabbath again. And so they think, you know, he's he's breaking the Sabbath. That's like rule number 1 for all pious Jews is you got to keep the Sabbath. And so that's why they that's one of the big reasons why they think he's not the Christ. Uh what's another Big reason. There was one more big reason that they think he's not the Christ, and that they're that they're wrong about. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That he's from Galilee, right? They're like, surely the Christ won't be from Galilee, will he? And 
Um, that's just, they're ignorant, right? They just don't know where he's actually from. They don't know that he was actually born in Bethlehem to descendants of David um, and that he just grew up in Galilee. Um, so, <clears throat> anyway, so like they, and then these are the, uh, uh, so, so they're ignorant about his origins. They're ignorant about the Sabbath and like God's true purpose for the Sabbath regulation and, leg- and legislation. Hey, so, so they're ignorant about these things, and that's why they reject him as the Christ. Um, but, you know, so for the people, this is kind of understandable, maybe. Like, maybe, maybe it's understandable that they don't understand these things. But for the leaders, for the Pharisees, for the rulers, it was literally their job to understand the law and to investigate people who claimed to be the Messiah, right? That was literally their job in life. So Jesus rebukes them pretty hard. He says, you are judging superficially. Don't judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment when they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. So he's like, guys, I expect you to know that the purpose of the Sabbath is for man, Uh, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then, with regard to his origin, they're talking about, well, oh, you know, look into it and you'll see a prophet doesn't come from Galilee. Well, why haven't they done their homework? Why haven't they gone and investigated? Why haven't they gone and interviewed his parents and figured out where he's actually from? Why do they still think that he's from Galilee? They haven't done their job. Right? So, so for the people, their ignorance is kind of understandable. For the leaders, their ignorance is culpable. Um, and anyway, but let's talk about the other side, right? The, the people who actually believe in Jesus as the Christ um, and, and continue to follow him, even after he says hard things. Like, why do they follow him? Why do they believe in him? What reasons do they give? I'm thinking of two reasons. Like, go back to John 6. Um verse 67 and 68. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, this is after a bunch of his followers had walked away when he said something really controversial. He said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. All right, so why did the twelve stay and believe in him? Yeah, and they believed because of his words, right? Because of his words. And elsewhere you see little comments like, um, you know, when the, when the temple um, guard is sent to arrest Jesus and they, they fail to arrest him and they come back to the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin's like, why didn't you arrest the guy? And they're like, well, no one ever spoke the words that this man speaks. So his words really carry a lot of wait, you know, so for some people, for those who actually believe that he's the Christ, his words uh, are testimony in themselves. But also, uh, Sorry, yeah. Uh, I yeah. one pastor saying that mm-hmm. not also that nature is but some people were able to pick up on the authority mm-hmm. Yes. Which was also really important. Because I think about like right. today, mm-hmm. politicians, you can speak very nicely some people, no matter what you say, don't believe you because there's simply no authority behind those words. Yeah. Like empty promises, very shell mm-hmm. like speeches and so like, ah, 
him because like yeah. he holds no real power here mm-hmm. no authority and so I know one thing for sure is when Jesus preached and taught some people who were called to him immediately picked up all this ministry yeah. with not just truth but with divine authority right yeah yeah, you can hear the weight of authority in his words, or some people could, at least. And then others believed because of the miracles and the signs, right? And of course, you know, when we talk about belief in the Gospel of John, not all belief is created equal, right? The people who believe just because of the miracles, their, their faith might not be true saving faith. But still, for those who are sympathetic to him and think that he's the Christ, a lot of them think that because... He did these miracles that nobody else can do. Um, And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Because John chapter 9 is about a miracle that was extra special as far as miracles go. Um, I don't know if if you guys know this, but in the the day of Jesus, the, uh, the rabbis of first century Judaism had separated miracles into basically two groups. There were ordinary miracles, which sounds really weird, right? Like ordinary miracles. But, but those are the miracles that any human being could do if he was empowered by the Spirit of God to do them. Uh, but there was a second class of miracles that was like real miracles that only the Messiah would be able to do. Uh, this, is, this is actually what the rabbis in first century Judaism taught. And I'm basing this off an article by um, a man named Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He's a Messianic Jew, uh, which is a Jewish person who has accepted Jesus as the Messiah. He wrote an article called um, The Three Messianic Miracles, where he sort of traces this this rabbinic tradition that there would be certain miracles, uh, three of them, that only the Messiah would be able to do. So this isn't directly from Scripture. It's a tradition. Um, from the rabbis, but it's interesting how Jesus took this expectation that was sort of extra biblical and used it to shine light to the people who who should have been able to see it. All right? Were you going to ask something? Oh yeah, yeah. These are not not exactly biblical categories, but but they're categories that uh, that Jesus nonetheless used to communicate in in a powerful way to the uh, the Jewish leaders. All right, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, so in Dr. Fruchtenbaum's article, uh, he outlines the three messianic miracles that the rabbis thought that only the Messiah would be able to do. The first was healing a Jewish leper. And the reason that they thought that this was a uniquely messianic miracle is that no Jewish leper had ever been healed in Israel since the completion of the Law of Moses. All right. Now, um, in the Law of Moses, uh, there's a lot of sections of that law, of Leviticus particularly, that deal with leprosy, right, and skin diseases and stuff. And um, he points out that, uh, that, that leprosy was the only way that a living human could make someone else unclean. Usually, people became unclean, ceremonially unclean, by touching a dead body, right? So that, that was the normal way to become unclean. But if you touched a leper, 
you became unclean as if you had touched a dead body. So leprosy is like very closely associated with death in terms of its ceremonially unclean effect. Right? So leprosy and death go hand in hand. Um, and that's why it's such a significant thing. Right? Um, so healing leprosy is sort of hand in hand with conquering uh, the, the, um, the uncleanness of death. Right. That's why it's significant. And the claim that um, no Jewish leper had been healed since the time of the completion of the Law of Moses, if you really know your Bible as well, you might be thinking of a couple exceptions to that. Uh, the dude. Had to put blood on his... Washing the Jordan. Are you thinking of Naaman? Naaman, He was not Jewish. He was Syrian. Yeah, he was Syrian. So he's not a Jew. Uh, he was he was healed of leprosy, and that was a very significant miracle um, that was performed in the days of I think Elisha. Um, yeah, and uh, so very significant. But he's not a Jew. The other exception that you might be thinking of is Miriam, Moses' sister. Right? Miriam rebelled, uh, or one is one of the leaders of a rebellion against Moses' authority, and as um, a consequence for her leadership of that rebellion, God struck her with leprosy for, I think, seven, seven days. days. Yeah. Uh, but then she was healed of that leprosy. But that was before the completion of the Law of Moses with all of the uh, stipulations for the uncleanness about, about leprosy. So, I mean, that's kind of, that's a little bit of a borderline case. But in the minds of these rabbis, first century rabbis, they were like, no... Jewish leper has ever been healed since the completion of the law of Moses. But when the Messiah comes, he will be able to do what's never been done before. So he'll be able to heal the Jewish leper. All right. And I've written the scriptures up here where Jesus actually fulfills these things. And so turn to Luke uh, chapter 5, and we'll read verses 12 through 17. Yeah, so um, knowing this context of like this expectation that the first century Jewish leaders had of the Messiah makes this passage all the more significant, right? We read this passage and we think, oh yeah, he healed a leper, right? He, that's sort of like he healed a bunch of people. But this was special in the minds of the Jewish people. Uh, it was special because it was one of these miracles that only the Messiah would be able to do. Um, so first it brings out the faith of the leper, where he, he falls down at the feet of Jesus and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He's not just expressing confidence that Jesus has the gift of healing. He's saying, I believe you're the Messiah because I believe you can do the thing that nobody else has been able to do in the history of Israel. Right? Um, but it also helps explain the reaction uh, so when Jesus heals the leper and he sends him to the temple to go do his ceremonial rites of purification, that was so that the Jewish leaders could establish that you know, this man was actually a leper, that he actually had leprosy, that he was actually healed of the leprosy. So they observed him for seven days to see if it had actually gone away. And then, number three, then they were supposed to investigate how did this happen because... Clearly, this means the Messiah has shown up, right? So that's why in verse 17, it's super significant that as he's teaching out in the countryside, 
Uh, <clears throat> the Pharisees and the teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So all over the place from a range of like 70 miles. These people are now, the religious leaders are now coming to him. Why? Because they're going to investigate this messianic miracle. All right. Were you going to ask something, Aaron? All right. No? Okay. Um, yeah, so I mean, it just intensifies, knowing the context sort of intensifies this event, this particular miracle. So this was the start. This was the first messianic miracle that Jesus performed that really officially made the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, sit up and take notice and start investigating him. I now, have, sorry, I have a on that. sure. It's very interesting that mm-hmm. you should tell this man, tell no one. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Jesus wanted to force the the crisis in the leadership. Basically, like he wanted to force them to deal with their own theology, which said only the Messiah will be able to heal a leper. Whereas, if there's just some leper who's running around the countryside saying it, I'm it's here, like, I'm here, I'm here. yeah, <clears throat> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. People were always. Because, yeah. You know, yeah. How can you not? Because you know this guy who looked like this and and high over there in the cave, mm-hmm. and suddenly he walked among the city. People were like, wait, is that so and so? Is that so and so? So it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's the funny thing. I you know I, I don't know what it is in the the Jewish text, but it's just ironic to me that John uses spreading here. Yeah. Oh, uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, healing a leper, right? That was the first messianic miracle that they thought only the Messiah would be able to do. And the second one was, was this one casting out a mute demon. Now, this seems weird, like oddly specific, right? Like casting out a mute demon? Why is that important? Um, hey, Chris. Uh, or, I mean,. Kevin. (laughs) Uh, Why is that important? Because, so I don't know if you guys knew this, but like the the first century Jews, the rabbis, they had procedures for exercising demons, right? They, They could actually do it in some cases, but they had a specific like recipe or ritual that they had to follow, which involved finding out the name of the demon and establishing communication with it and, like, saying particular words, right? So, um, you know, we don't really have time and I don't have the background knowledge to get into a full study of demons and exorcism, right? Like, how were they, how were these rabbis actually able to do this? I have no idea. But apparently it was not unknown, not unheard of for, for their rabbis to be able to drive out demons. But they had to be able to talk to the demon, they had to be able to find out its name and communicate it, communicate with it. 
So they couldn't drive out a demon who had made the man that it possessed mute, because then they couldn't find out its name or establish communication with it. So, but these rabbis said, well, when the Messiah comes, he will have the power to drive out a demon without even knowing its name. So, and the way we'll know that is he'll drive a demon out of a man who was mute. Um, this is apparently a real thing that they believed back in those days. Again, not exactly a scriptural thing. You know, there's no verse in the Bible that says when the Messiah comes, he'll drive a mute demon out. But it was something they believed, and it was something that Jesus used to uh, to shine the light on them, basically. So, um, let's go to where we see that happening. Matthew 12, 22 and 23. <clears throat> Um, Aaron, you want to yeah. read that? Uh, wait, did I get the right? It is um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I might have made it go too far to the... Um, Oh, okay, 32. Just stop at 32, I guess. So so read um, 22 to 32. Then a demon-possessed man, was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by... Uh, yeah, Beelzebul. The ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. All right, so how many of you have heard of the unforgivable sin, right, of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Have, how many of you have ever wondered what that means? Or, like, have you ever been afraid that, oh, you know, what if I commit the unforgivable sin of blasphemy? You know, well, knowing this context here... <clears throat> That it helps us understand what Jesus actually meant by the unforgivable sin, and it's something that um, that is not something that an individual can commit, and it was something that was limited to that generation of people who rejected Jesus when when they should have known better, right? So the unforgivable sin is not something that we can commit today, and uh, hopefully. We're going to see that here in the next minute, minute or so. Um, so at the beginning of this passage that Aaron just read, we saw the miracle, right? It's very 
matter-of-factly stated, there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. So not just mute. Dumb is a synonym for mute. Not just mute, but also blind, you know, to, to like just add a little bit more challenge to the miracle. And Jesus healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. Okay, so he did it. He cast out a demon <clears throat> from a man <clears throat> who was mute, and not just mute, but blind as well. So, by the Pharisees' own theology, by their own teaching, he has just performed the second of three miracles that only the Messiah would be able to do. Right? So, at this point, <clears throat> they have to either recognize that he's the Messiah in accord with their own teaching, or they have to find some other explanation for why he's able to do the miracles that only the Messiah can do. And so they're searching around for an explanation, and they say, <clears throat> they come up with, well, uh, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. All right? So they're, they say, okay, uh, yeah, he did the thing of casting out a demon, but he did it by the power of Satan. And Jesus is like, <laughs> Jesus is like, whoa, your, your logic doesn't even make sense here. Um, if I cast out this demon uh, who is under the authority of Satan, then my authority must be greater than the authority of Satan. Who's the only person in existence who has authority greater than Satan? Yahweh, God, you know? So, like, <laughs> and also, by the way, you guys cast out demons, so if I cast them out by Satan, who do you cast them out by, you know? So, right, he kind of dismantles their argument, but then what's interesting is he goes on to connect that what they're saying with that unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Why does he do that? Why does he say, he's essentially saying, you guys, by attributing my messianic miracle to the power of Satan, are committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in a way that cannot be forgiven. Why? Because they, of all people, should know better. Right? They have developed this theology, this doctrine, that when the, when the Messiah comes, only he will be able to perform a miracle like this. And so, they, of all people in the world, should be able to recognize Jesus for who he is as, the, as God's representative, God's son. So when they turn and say the exact opposite thing about Jesus, that he's actually a representative of Satan and the son of Satan, basically, they are radically blaspheming against the work and the power of God. Right? That they're, they've had so much light and so much... Um, of so much opportunity to see and respond that when they respond the completely wrong way, there's no, there's no uh, forgiving that. Right? That's what Jesus is saying here. Because of their, then, because they are, uh, they are the people that God has revealed mm-hmm. the word to, so the accountability for them is different from the Gentile. Yeah. And, and, and for them to know the Messiah, to know who I am, is mm-hmm. to say that the person standing in front of them so much desired to not accept mm-hmm. God and, and, and now say that God is a demon, is, is, is saying with knowledge yeah. and conviction of, of 
know, refute the conviction they have and, and, and right. they would knowledge and understanding rather than ignorance. Yeah, yeah. It's it has to do with, with how much knowledge you've been given. What you know, Jesus said from those to whom much has been given, much is expected. And later he also said, um, you know, the, the, master, the servant who doesn't know his master's will and doesn't do it will be beaten with a few blows, but the servant who knows his master's will and doesn't do it will be beaten with many blows, right? So that he, there's, there is this principle in Scripture that we are judged according to, to the light, to the knowledge that God has allowed us to receive. And these, these guys had received maximum light, maximum knowledge, and they, can, they came to the maximally wrong conclusion. So they're getting the maximum judgment from, from God. What were we going to say? Uh-huh. Um, one is a question. So you know how in Revelation, mm-hmm. like end times, this like massive chaos. There's like angels flying overhead. Yeah. They proclaim only one thing, day and night, day, mm-hmm. day and end, and all night. Yeah. Which is repent and leave on to Right. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's also akin to this type of response? Like, Absolutely. You, you've seen like literally the most mm-hmm. person could see. Right, yeah. And you still say no, right? Absolutely, yeah. God in Revelation is very much like shining the light, making sure that people have no excuse for not knowing who he is and what he's doing. And yet they still refuse to worship him. Right, that's he's basically illuminating the extent of sin in the human heart, um, both here and in Revelation. Yeah. So you mentioned like the severity of uh, those who have been taught mm-hmm. the Word of God and then the consequences that follow if you still choose to reject. Yeah. It just makes me think how in my life I've heard a lot of people say like, uh, "Oh, it doesn't matter what the Bible says." For mm-hmm. Various reasons. One of the most popular is like, "Well, it doesn't match current times." Mm-hmm. Or your half pastor saying like, "Oh, we can make the Bible contemporary." Then I think about why is it then that the Bible consistently throughout Old Testament, New Testament, teachers mm-hmm. who don't adhere to the Word of God faithfully are horribly punished for it. Yeah. So it's a guarantee. I think it's in James, right? Mm-hmm. The special punishment yeah. for teachers. Teachers. Yeah. So the fact that mm-hmm. even if you do dispense God's Word, but then you obviously twist it or distort it, <clears> also wait on that other side of the. Yeah. That's what makes me shake, right? I'm standing up here teaching. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to incur a stricter judgment than all of you um, before the Lord. And that in it generally moves me to, <laughs> to spend a lot of time preparing um, these lessons during the week. This week we had a whole bunch of stuff like car trouble and... Um, sickness that I didn't get to prepare as much, but, uh, but yeah, like (laughs) there's a little bit of terror there, you know, when you're a teacher preparing to say something about the word of God, you want to make sure that you're saying the right thing. Um, yeah. So here we see, like, after, after Jesus' first messianic miracle, he healed the Jewish leper. We see the Pharisees and the leaders coming out in droves to investigate him as the Messiah. They're not opposing him yet, but they're just investigating him. Now, here later, after the second messianic miracle, he casts out a mute demon. 
the leaders have already made up their mind to reject him, and they're just looking for excuses to do it. So they're they're hostile to him now. Um, now we're going to move on to this third messianic miracle, which is in John chapter 9. And by the way, John doesn't record many of Jesus' miracles. He only records, I think, seven in the entire book. Um, whereas Jesus, it says Jesus did countless miracles. You know, even in, in John at the end of the gospel, John says, if, if everything that, uh, you know, if everything that Jesus did were written down, I suppose not even the whole world would contain all the books. So John recognizes that there's way more than he could write down. So when he includes a miracle, it's for a very specific reason. Um, and John knew, John's gospel, by the way, was written after the other gospels, uh, people think. Uh, people are, are, scholars are pretty sure that John's gospel was written about 20 years, maybe, maybe 10 to 30 years, let's say, after the other synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John probably assumed that his readers had already read or heard the other three gospels and were familiar with the events in them. So he may have been counting on people to know that Jesus had already healed a Jewish leper and cast out a mute demon, and he's not going to waste space recording that information. He's just going to record the third, uh, the, the sort of climactic messianic miracle that Jesus did, which was to heal a man born blind. This was the third category, uh, the third type of miracle that the Jewish rabbis of the day thought that only the Messiah would be able to do. All right, and they distinguished between healing a man who had gone blind at some point in his life versus healing a man who was born blind. Um, and I'm not entirely sure why they made that distinction, uh, other than just that it's a lot harder to heal congenital blindness than to heal, um, you know, acquired blindness. Uh, and you know, maybe maybe some of their rabbis had been able to heal. Uh, blindness that had that uh, had come upon people uh, when they were adults, like a sickness. Yeah. Wasn't there a superstition this time where they people generally thought people who were born blind or death, whatever, cursed? Yeah, yeah. And you see that here. I think that's probably the right explanation for this. Probably. Um, congenital blindness was connected in their minds very strongly with sin, with with especially grave sin. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to see that in our text that we're about to read here. Um, we're going to read. So yeah, let's just go ahead and read that. John chapter nine, verses one through twelve. Yeah, so we see here. Um, you know what what we were talking about in that second verse, and when the disciples saw the man who was born blind, they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Right. So they, they assumed, it was so strong of an association in their mind between congenital blindness and punishment for sin, um, that, uh, that they assumed that someone must have sinned. Uh, right? Either his parents, or actually the, the Jews believed that a baby in the womb could commit sins that were grievous enough that God would punish that with, with congenital blindness. Yeah. I think this expectation is because of the Old Testament chronicles of like, this is what happens when you does a big guy, you guys start with bad things. Um, bad things. Yeah, it could be the pattern 
Yeah, God God did use this pattern in Israel as a nation, right? Where if they if they as a group obeyed him, he would bless them, and if they as a group disobeyed him, he would punish them. Yeah, generation. And right, and he would even visit the consequences of one generation's sin onto their children and grandchildren. Um, so that that's true, but that's God dealing with groups of people, right? And it's also God dealing with consequences of sin, not with not with um, really the the guilt or the, uh, you know the the condemnation of sin. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's very clear that when God deals with an individual, He judges that person's soul and salvation according to um, their. Uh, their sin, their own sin, not their parents' sin, not their children's sin. Um, yeah, we don't have time to fully explore this issue, but like, yeah, the disciples have wrong theology. They, their fallacy is that they assume that uh, bad things that happen are always punishment for sin. And sometimes bad things are punishment for sin, but usually that's when it's something that's like logically or naturally connected to the sin, right? Like if you um, have a, you know, a gambling problem and you gamble all your money away and then you don't have enough food to eat and you go hungry, right? That's, that's a natural consequence of your sin. Um, so, yeah, and there is a sense in which that happens, and God uses natural consequences to punish sin. But it's not always the case that people who suffer are suffering because of a specific sin. Right? And we, we need to remember that um, as, as Christians. Uh, but in this case, you know, Jesus explicitly confirms that it was not a sin. There was no sin on the part of this man or, or his parents that led to his blindness. But he was blind, you know, at the, at the God level, at the divine level, God planned for this man to be born blind so that God, uh, God's works would be seen and displayed in him. Uh, so Jesus goes ahead and does it, right? He heals the man. Um, <clears throat> and we're going to see in the next couple of lessons how the Pharisees respond. Uh, they don't... They don't just respond by denying the miracle. They respond by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and excommunicating all of his followers, you know, those who, who proclaim allegiance to him. And that, so they're, they're escalating their hostility in their response to Jesus. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, won't, we don't have time to deal with all that response today. We're going to save it for, for the next couple of, of weeks um, but I just wanted to put this healing here in context of these three messianic miracles that the Jews of the day were expecting, right? So Jesus, this is recording the, the third and final messianic miracle of Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And that makes his words here in um, chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, that much more significant when he refers to being the light of the world. So let's read those words of Jesus one more time. Uh, it was neither, This is verse 3. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. 
while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so, uh, the reason Jesus did this healing, this is the key, the reason that Jesus did this healing was to shine the light of God's truth about salvation into the Jewish culture of the day. Right? In a way that they, that they were prepared to see it. They had this expectation that only the Messiah would do this. And so he comes and he shines the light of God's truth about who Jesus is and how he saves people into their culture. Um, he came for a specified time only. He said, uh, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. What did he mean by that? Well, he says, I'm the light of the world. Right? So when Jesus is present, then it's day. He's about to be taken away. Um, we're actually just a few months before the crucifixion at this point in John. So he's about to be taken away. And when the light's taken away, then it's night. And no one can work um, in this sense. Right? There, that's, uh, then, then the light will be taken away from, uh, from the people, from the, the Jewish leaders. Um, so he's making a point he's shining the light of who he is and what he's here for to them and the miracle itself is kind of just the exclamation point on top of this this light that he's shining and it's a physical demonstration of this truth this spiritual truth about light right? because there's a blind man who can't see the light and what does Jesus do? Because he's the Messiah, he heals this man. He, he shines the light on him so that he can see the light. And then what's going to happen to the Pharisees? The Pharisees claim to see, right? They claim to have knowledge. They claim uh, that they are the ones close to God who know God's truth and God's law. What's, he, what's Jesus going to do to them? What is Jesus' light? Yeah, Jesus' light blinds them. Because they, they are thrown into this irrational hostility to him and rejection of him in the face of their own theology, which said only the Messiah would do the things Jesus does. Right? So Jesus' light shining on them blinds them. Jesus' light shining on this, this blind man makes him see. It's kind of this, this reversal. It's another principle that runs all throughout Scripture, is God uh, exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. He reverses the fortunes of people in the world, basically. Um, So, just real quick, a couple more important characteristics of this miracle, um, just to wrap it up. So, it happened on the Sabbath, like we mentioned before. This was a huge sticking point for the the Pharisees, and one of the reasons that they uh, rejected Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, because they're like, he works on the Sabbath, he can't be... He can't be a righteous Jew. Um, So it also shows, though, that even though Jesus was willing to shine the light on the Pharisees in the way that they that they could accept it, um, you know, according to their expectations of what the Messiah would do, he was not willing to accept their theology. Right? He did not accept their theology about the Sabbath, that man was a slave to the Sabbath law. He said, uh, you know, the Sabbath is for man. It's right to do good on the Sabbath. So he didn't accept their theology, even though he accommodated himself to what they expected of the Messiah in some ways. 
second thing, the, the healing occurred at the pool of Siloam. Notice Jesus told the guy uh, after he made the mud, um, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent, right? So there's kind of a double meaning there. Jesus sent the man to go wash, and Jesus was sent from God uh, to be the light of the world. Uh, but the pool of Siloam was significant in another way. Remember, we're at the Feast of Tabernacles here. Right, that was chapters seven and eight were were definitely the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a little hard to place chapter nine in the chronology, but if chapter nine is connected to chapters seven and eight, then we're still at the Feast of Tabernacles, which I think is probably the case. And remember, at the Feast of Tabernacles, there was this whole water drawing ceremony where they'd go draw water from the pool of Siloam, bring it up to the temple, and um, you know, use it as part of the, the big festival. And that's when Jesus, when they did that, that's when Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And so that was, a, that was a, uh, a big messianic proclamation. And now he's sending this blind man to that same pool, the pool of Siloam, to go and wash. Um, so he's, he's sort of pointing back to his earlier declaration, like, you know, come to me, you who are thirsty, I will give you water, living water. Uh, I'm also the light of the world, and I'm making this man see. Pool of Siloam. Uh, another quick point, why the mud? You know, why does Jesus go and like spit on the ground and make mud? I mean, that's kind of weird. There's, there's a lot of speculation. I read some commentaries. Um, people don't really agree on, on why he made the mud. I think we can't really say why he did that, but... Um, what's interesting is that Jesus, in all his miracles, he never heals anyone the same way twice. You know what I mean? He never, uh, he never does the same miracle the same way twice. And I think, if I could speculate a little bit, I think that um, he didn't want to uh, give the impression that, he, that the power was in the ritual. Right? that the power was in the magic words or the thing that he did. He wanted to convey that the power was in him. He is God. He has the power of God. Um, and uh, just two more things. Uh, if you see later in the passage, in verses like 7 through 12, the people who knew the man who was blind... They were so surprised. They thought this kind of miracle, the healing of a man born blind, was so impossible that they, th- they thought this wasn't even the same man. Right? They thought, like, well, you know, was it someone who looked like him or maybe his brother or something? They, they couldn't believe that this had happened. because And, and th- this just underscores the significance of this miracle, healing a man born blind. You know, we read John 9 and we say, oh yeah, it's another miracle. You know, Jesus did a, a lot of those. But in their minds, in the minds of the first century Jewish people, this was a really significant miracle. And everyone demonstrated that by their reaction to this man being healed. I mean, they knew the guy, right? They, he was a beggar and it says these were his neighbors. So they, uh, they saw him every day. They knew who it was. They just couldn't believe that a, a man congenitally blind was healed because that means the Messiah is here and then finally at this point in this passage we've just read the man doesn't actually know Jesus yet right? he's met Jesus and he's heard his voice he has not seen him 
right? Because Jesus sent him away with the mud on his eyes to go wash in the pool. So he hasn't seen Jesus yet. He doesn't really know Jesus. He doesn't have a relationship with him. So he can't really tell people about the Messiah yet. He can only report the facts of his healing. But later on in the chapter, we're going to see how he, how his, his sort of ignorant faith becomes a, um, a faith rooted in knowledge. He gets to have a relationship with Christ, and he, his witness becomes that much more powerful. It's really cool um, in, in the rest of the chapter. So that's what we're going to cover uh, in the coming weeks. We'll look at how different groups of people, including the man who was healed, responded to the light of this miracle. And we'll see how some uh, people responded by gaining sight, and some people responded to this light by being blinded. And, you know, it's just really, John is just escalating us, just ratcheting up the division and the extremity of the response to Jesus. Okay, so I think that's all I had today. Any any questions or comments on this? I mean, I just think it's so fascinating how Jesus he perfectly balanced like he he didn't just come on his own terms, but he also didn't accept the terms of his opponents fully either, right? He he said he planned I'm going to do these miracles, these three miracles that you're expecting the Messiah to do. Um, even though they're not in the Bible, they're not contradictory to the Bible either. But I'm going to do them in a way, like I'm going to do them on the Sabbath, right? Which is a direct challenge to your false theology. So he was so good. Jesus was so good at um, coming down to people without accepting their their wrong terms, you know. And I think like it's an amazing skill. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well.